we, we have been making our way through the book. Uh, last week, we looked at the beginning or middle part of chapter 3. And uh, this morning, as we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 12 through 19. Uh, here, we will leave the direct citation of Psalm 95 that the author of Hebrews quoted uh, in verses 7 through 11. In those verses, uh, the, the verses we looked at last week, uh, we saw how God treated the Israelites who failed to believe that he could give them the promised land. The first generation of Israelites, if you remember in the Old Testament story, they received a bad report from, two, from the 12 spies, from 10 of the 12 spies. And so they believed that report, and they decided not to put their faith and trust in God uh, because of their fear for the giants in the land. Now, however, the author appeals directly from that story to his readers, and he expects them to consider their own faith and their own commitments to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 19, the author will use very powerful language and describe something I think that is extremely important for uh, people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ for them to hear. I want to illustrate how important I think this is. Of course, uh, one of the functions of pastoral ministry is helping people at different phases of life and uh, helping them work through different issues that they might face in life. And one of those things are physical trials and difficulties uh, regarding people's health. I've had the opportunity now a few times to help different people as they consider uh, possibilities in how to deal with cancer. Some forms of cancer treatment involve placing a poisonous pill or pellet into cancerous tissue in our body so that the cancer dies. It's not too long ago I helped a man kind of think through whether he should do that, place this poison pill that would release radiation into the cancer cells or to cut off the cancer completely. We look through that. Of course, the way that the pellet is designed to work is it is to gradually release poison into the organ and the tissue directly surrounding uh, the pill. Of course, the plan in such cases is not for the pill to be permanently planted uh, into the body and to, or for it to release its poison all throughout the body. It's supposed to be regional to care for the cancer. Now, what the author of Hebrews reveals here in this passage is that there is a poison planted deep within some of his original readers. I think the same is true in my audience today. It is highly likely that in an audience this size, that within some of you is a poison that will eventually corrupt and destroy you if it's left unchecked. And so the author of Hebrews will deal with a particular subject that I think is like a poison that lives within many people. Today, 
uh, we are going to learn two lessons regarding this poison. The author will first describe its remedy in verses 12 to 15, and then he will identify its source in verses 16 through 19. So we start with describing its remedy, verses 12 through 15. Uh, in these verses, you'll see the text is arranged around two imperatives, two verbs, two commands. In verse 12, it's the first two words, take care. And then we see it in verse 13, exhort. Those are the main commands. So as we're looking at the remedy that the author of Hebrews gives to this poison that's planted within the hearts of his readers, he says these two things, take care and exhort. I want to look at the first one with you. Verse 12, his first remedy is, you need to watch out. Those two words, take care, could be translated, watch out. Look with me in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Again, the words take care come from one word originally that could be translated watch out or look out. It means to be alert, to be vigilant. We're to watch out that we don't follow the example of the Old Testament Israelites in Psalm 95 and Numbers 14 before them. More specifically, though, in this passage, I think the author tells us exactly what to watch out for regarding them. And I would describe it two ways. First, we're to watch out for an evil heart. That's what the text says, verse 12. <clears throat> the most serious problem of Israel in the wilderness was their evil heart of unbelief. <clears throat> Again, we've seen this a few different times, but this first generation did not believe in God's ability to fulfill his promise to them. One commentator, Craig Coaster, said this. He said, they suffered from a persistent refusal to put their faith in God. One of the things I want you to notice about the Israelite people in the Old Testament who failed to trust in God is this not, was not just like a one-time failure, but it was a persistent, ongoing problem. They had evil hearts full of unbelief. So another man said this week, they had the heart of deserters or traitors. They were unwilling to trust in God. But the author of Hebrews gives one more description of that evil heart of unbelief near the end of verse 12. There he describes it as a heart that will draw you away from the living God. Okay, so this evil heart that he's concerned would be planted within some of his readers is a heart that will draw them away from God, a heart that will result in their falling away from the Lord. Now, one, uh, one important thing to notice here is the adjective that's used to describe God, right? You see that, the living God. When the authors of Scripture, including the author of Hebrews, use that, for it, that adjective connected to God, it usually emphasizes two things. It emphasizes his dynamic character, God's dynamic character, and the certainty of someone's punishment. You see, since God is not dead, since he is living, he responds to the things that happen in this world. 
Okay, so as we're going through this text, we see their evil hearts would lead them away from a God who's living. God is living. Let's make a brief application here. Have you ever felt this within your own heart? Do you sense this? Over time, are you more likely to drift away, have fewer times of prayer and time with God in His Word, fewer times of closeness to Him? If that is true of you, you need to take care You need to watch out. That is symbolic, symptomatic of an evil heart. I think because we all continue to have a sin nature. You know Jesus Christ is your Savior. You continue to have a sin nature. I think any of us can demonstrate some spiritual hardness. And so I think this warning is very important. Watch out. Take care, brothers, lest there is in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that will draw you away from God. I think the old hymn writer was on to something when he said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Men and women, that is an evil heart that will draw us away from the God we love. So the first part of his remedy here with a hardened heart is take care, watch out, look out for this sort of thing. But then in verses 13 through 15, he gives another command. He continues to tell us how to address a poisonous, deadly heart with the second command, look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I want you to think about this for a while. This is the author's answer to how to deal with a hardened heart. If you were trying to help someone who came to you and said, I have a hard heart. I sense or feel that my heart is hardened to God. What answer would you give them? What would you tell them would be key for them if they had a hard heart? You all doing the mental thing for me? Because I'm going to give you what I would say, but I want you to think about it. Someone comes to you and says, I feel like I have a hard heart to God. What would you tell them they need to do? Here's some of my answers. I, I had two that came to mind. One, I might say something like this, so that they know Christ. I might say the key is the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will keep you from falling. Ironically, it's in the same book, the book of Hebrews, where the author twice reminds us that of the new covenant promise that God will put a new heart into his 
followers. And we find out that in the new covenant, God himself establishes the heart of all of his children by placing his Holy Spirit within them. Okay, so if someone comes to me and says, I feel that I'm hard to God, I don't know what to do, I might remind them that if you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, he's going to be working in you. That's my answer, okay? which in some passages could be appropriate or right. Or I might talk about the value of the word of God as a means of avoiding a hard heart. I mean, the word of God contains the words of God right? And we know these words are powerful, for when God speaks, he creates, or he gives life, or he gives spiritual life. That's one of the reasons we go verse by verse through this, because God will use his word to produce life, spiritual life, renewal, repentance, God's words are powerful. So if someone came to me and said, I have a hard heart, what should I do? I might say, get in the word. Right? These are the words of God. These will help you. And again, in some texts, I think that could be an appropriate answer. But that's not what the author says here. What is the answer that the author of Hebrews gives to, to people who would have a hardened heart? His answer is found in one word. A one-word command that's translated exhort. Exhort. Now, this is not a word we use frequently, so I want to dig in and I want to see what type of exhortation is he describing here in this passage, verses 13 through 15. I see him describing this exhort, this exhortation in three ways. First, he describes its nature, the nature of exhortation. Look with me again at verse 13. But exhort one another every day. So I described the nature of this exhortation. I would do so in two ways. It's what the author of Hebrews does. He first describes it as being mutual. You need to do this to one another. The author of Hebrews puts strong emphasis on the need for mutual encouragement to keep professing believers <clears throat> from falling or being hardened. I think, by the way, the reason I don't normally come up with this is maybe the reason you wouldn't have come up with this is a solution to a hardened heart, and that is because we don't tend to value the church or relationships in the church with each other as highly as we should in our culture today. I think perhaps one of the reasons for this is we live in a culture in modern America that is individualistic, and it's a private culture. So we tend not to have much interaction with other people outside of the workplace. That's the way our culture has transitioned. You need to be aware of that. It's different, I think, than the first century. So we live in a culture that values private time alone at the house. I remember trying to get to know someone not too far that lived too far away from us, and it was about impossible because they would drive home, drive into their garage, close the garage door, and I never saw them. Like, I knew people lived there unless it was like an automatic vehicle, right? Someone lived in the house, but you never saw them. That's the sort of culture that we live in, a culture that values individualistic lives, privacy. 
Yet this text teaches us that our perseverance in joyful, faithful holiness depends on Christians exhorting each other again and again with the truth of God's word. You see, this is the solution the author of Hebrews gives to protection from a hard heart, that we would be exhorting one another with the word. In other words, we are not designed to survive without the ministry of the word from other people. That's one of the reasons we, we preach so strongly here, community with each other as followers of Jesus Christ. You are not designed to last without other believers speaking truth from God's word into your life. And so this not only describes our need then to hear God's word preached whenever we gather together in the corporate assembly. And by the way, that is important too, that you would hear God's word preached in corporate gatherings. But it also means more than that. And I think that can be clear as you just keep reading the text. So you keep reading, but exhort one another. And what are the next few, few words? Next two words. Every day. So if I'm describing the nature of the sort of exhortation that will prevent us from having hardened hearts, it would be regular, daily. Exhortation with the word of God. It says they're right in the text. Uh, every day. This is an adverbial phrase which describes the exhortation temporally. This is when it is to be done. And now it's likely that this church met daily in their homes in the first century. Matter of fact, as you keep reading in Hebrews, you can see that the daily meeting together was beginning to become a little bit burdensome to some of them because some of them were starting to skip out on the daily, regular meeting of believers in homes. The author of Hebrews stresses that this should be a regular thing, that believers are speaking truth in your life, and you're speaking the truth of God's word into their life as well. You're exhorting them concerning their faith and their heart. Another way he says this is he, he again alludes to or quotes Psalm 95. He says uh, there um, in verse 13, uh, as you're reading, he talks about while it is called today. While it is called today, as long as it is called today. Again, that's an allusion back to Psalm 95. By, by saying this, the author means, if the period called today lasts, if you experience this day, you can still follow God's remedy for hardness. You see, you must understand that the, the remedy for hardness Try to advance the slide once here. There it is. The, the remedy for hardness is mutual daily encouragement. Mutual daily encouragement can stave off spiritual hardness in our lives. Okay, that's what I'm going to summarize verses 12 through 15. That's the remedy. And it's not just Sunday's under the preaching, although that's a part of it, it's also daily, regularly, with other believers speaking the truth of God's word to each other. But there's more in the text, and for our last 15 minutes here, I want to I notice 
uh, some of that. What is the purpose of their daily mutual encouragement? Well, I think you find that in verse 13 as well, in the middle of the verse. It says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, and here's the purpose, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We exhort each other that no one would be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Here, sin is personified. Uh, often in scriptures, uh, the, the authors will personify uh, sins or passions and, and make them like a, a human being that act upon people. Here, sin is conceived of as an agent that deceives and leads individual professing believers to irretrievably hopeless positions. In other passages in Hebrews, riches are personified, and the old self is personified, false brothers are personified as being deceitful, but here it's sin that deceives. And the main emphasis, I think, in this text, though, is not on sin, it's on the deceitfulness of sin. So I want you to think about this. The author of Hebrews could, could have said, don't be hardened by sin. But he didn't say that. He said, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And by saying it that, that way, he's warning us against a particular quality of sin. Sin deceives you. It will deceive you. So we, at times, will excuse little indulgences in our lives. We call them little, but little indulgences. But then, finally, one day, we may be overwhelmed by the consequences of years of sin. Sin is deceitful. And at times, we might be right on the edge of a dropout or some spiritual penalty for a string of sins and yet feel safe and very comfortable. That's how sin deceives. And brothers and sisters, when we neglect the mutual edification of each other that we find among brothers at our corporate gatherings and throughout the week, we are vulnerable. He continues in verses 14 and 15 with giving us the reason for this exhortation. And I want you to see it. So look in your Bible, verse 14. For, it's going to give us the grounds of the reason. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Here, the first word of verse 14, uh, with that word, we learn that what follows is a reason or the grounds for our command to exhort one each other, one another. We exhort each other because we have become sharers in Christ only if we hold our confidence firm. It's a very interesting way for the author of Hebrews to say this. Sharing in Christ is something that we are presently enjoying only if we continue to the end. See that? Very interesting way to say it. Sharing in Christ demands firm confidence in him until the end. This particular point in Hebrews, and actually, honestly, throughout much of the second half of the book, you will have texts like this one that emphasize 
perseverance, the doctrine of perseverance in the faith. And so as we consider that in this passage, we think through the doctrine of perseverance, we need to know just a few things about it, okay? We need to realize that perseverance is not a way to gain or earn salvation. We, no one gains or earns salvation. It's by the completed work of Jesus Christ and him alone. It's by faith and repentance uh, concerning the work of Jesus Christ. Perseverance does not gain or earn salvation, but it does demonstrate salvation. You will not be accepted by God without it, without faith in Christ. And true faith in Christ perseveres until the end. Okay, so it's not like you're going to live a perfect life as we You're going to sin. Sometimes you're going to struggle with sin quite significantly in your Christian life. But if your faith is genuine and true, it will persevere to the end. Okay, so we're, we're looking through this text, and we're, we're dealing with what Paul says here. It says, for we have come to share in Christ presently, if indeed, if only, we hold our confidence firm to the end. He's stressing perseverance. So in verses 12 through 15, we learn the remedy to sin's hardening. Sin is deceptive in the way that it works, and we need each other to battle against it. Mutual, regular encouragement protects us from being hardened by sin. That's the remedy to the poison that might be within us. But I think the author has one more lesson for us to learn, and I want to look at that with you in verses 16 through 19. Verses 16 through 19, I think that the author gets very clear, and he identifies the source of the poison that he's describing, the evil heart that he's describing. And and he will do so in, I think, a very important way for us. So we're going to look at this together, and we can go pretty quickly through this. Before we look at these verses, let me just ask you. Have you ever been resolved to serve God, to please him, only to end up disobeying when you didn't have human accountability? When there weren't other people, when you were all alone? Have you ever had that issue? I think all of us have. We've just noted how important human accountability and encouragement uh, of brothers and sisters are. We just noticed how important that is. But in those moments when we're all alone and we sin, is that our real and biggest problem? Is our real and biggest problem, I should have had someone else with me? Or is there a more fundamental problem? I think that there's a more fundamental problem. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to show us in verses 16 through 19. And so we'll work through this together. The author presents a second lesson to us in a twofold structure. He describes it's the source of the poison within. The way he does this is he starts with question and answer, and then he gives a concluding statement in case you missed the point of the question and answers. So we first look at the question and answers as verses 16 through 18. And it's interesting that in these three verses, you have the author asking six questions. The first question in each verse actually comes from places in Psalm 95, the passage that he looked at before. So the first question in verse 16 comes from Psalm 95. The first question in, Psalm, in verse 17 comes from Psalm 95. 
the first question, verse 18, comes from Psalm 95. The answer that the author gives to those questions come in the form, ironically, in the form of questions too. So the second question in verse 16, I think, comes from other Old Testament texts. The second answer in verse 17 comes from other Old Testament texts, and the third answer comes from other Old Testament texts. He's using the Old Testament again. We'll go quickly through each one of these. The first question and answer is in verse 16. Look in your Bibles, verse 16. For we were those who heard and yet, or I'm sorry, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? That comes from Psalm 95. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? That's how he's going to answer. He's going to ask with a question. It has an obvious answer. I think that comes from other places like in Numbers 14. We know the answer to the question from Numbers 14. So when the children of Israel, the first generation, heard, they rebelled. The verse could be translated at the beginning, although they heard, yet they rebelled. The truth with them was they rebelled. They were disobedient against God. Okay, now the second question answered verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Okay, so that reference to 40 years is from Psalm 95. Okay, so he's going to answer that with another question. Look at the second question. Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's stacking up proof or examples of the disobedient acts of the first generation. They rebelled. They sinned. Isn't that the people that God was grieved with for 40 years who provoked him and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? The third question answer comes in verse 18. Look at verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Question mark. He put a question mark there. Was it not to those who were disobedient? Question mark. So the author of Hebrews is following the same pattern again, and here he wants to highlight that they were not only rebellious and, and sinned, but that they disobeyed God in the wilderness. Where disobedience here speaks of active disobedience. They were actively opposing God, so God takes an oath. He makes a promise that they will not get into his rest, the text says, and we're going to find out later that that rest is the promised land. They're not getting into the promised land that God gives them. So I want to show you something about this text. It's, I think, a very important part of this text. So you got the verses we just read there in the slide behind me, verses 16, 17, and 18. I think each verse is demonstrating the Israelites' failure in a particular area. Verse 16, they rebelled. Verse 17, they sinned. Verse 18, they disobey. But were those the most fundamental issue? No, because if you keep reading in verse 19, he draws a conclusion. There's one little word in your Bible. It's so. Okay, when you read that word in English, you know that, okay, he's been stacking up these different things. Now he's going to draw a conclusion from the fact that they were rebelling, sinning, and disobedient. And here is his conclusion. So we see they were not able to enter because of what? You say it with me, unbelief, and I'll even underline it for you. Okay, the most significant sin, the poison that lied with, with that, that lay within the heart of the Old Testament Israelites that led to a whole host of other things was unbelief. The sin of non-belief in God, in his power, in his ability. 
So what I think the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's showing us that unbelief is at the root of each of these other sins. I want you to listen to the way one commentator described this. I'll read it to you. A lot of words up there. Richard Phillips, in the uh, Reformed Expository Commentary, said this. He said, Unbelief is the root of all sins. Specific sins are like rotten fruit hanging on a bad tree, but this is not the real problem. It's not the disease, just the symptom. If we are greedy or hateful or selfish or dishonest, this is just the evidence of dead, rotten things deeper inside. Unbelief is the root system that feeds the whole rotten tree of sin. By contrast, it is believing God that causes us to obey him. Noah is a good example. He believed when God foretold the flood, and it was because of his belief that Noah went ahead and built the ark. On the other hand, because the Israelites had not believed his promises, they rebelled and sinned in the desert. Notice his last statement. Very good. The issue of faith versus unbelief is at the core of every spiritual issue. That's a lot to take in, right? So what I'm suggesting to you from Hebrews is when we don't believe God, we're not simply being passive instead of being active. We are potentially fueling all kinds of of other sins. And our heart can become gradually hardened. Non-belief is a poison pill planted within some hearts. Non-belief, if left unchecked in our lives, will produce many Forms of sin. So verses 60 through 90, I think he's just making it really clear. What's the real problem with Israel? What is the author of Hebrews concerned? That some of his hearers might also demonstrate he is concerned that they will not believe in God, his power. So as we draw application to our lives, thought of a few different sins that we commit from time to time to demonstrate the fact that in that moment, we are not believing God. Perhaps you've been overwhelmed with how your family members are treating you. And so you explode in anger. There are a whole host of reasons and ways I could describe what you did, but it's likely because you don't believe something about God. For instance, Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20, gives us a parallel situation. Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He could have got really angry when he, he meets them. But in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20, he says this. He says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear. He's talking to his brothers. He sold them into slavery. Do not fear, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant it for evil against me. 
but God meant it for good. Okay, so in the heat of the moment, when we struggle, struggle with anger and we sin by being angry with our family members, that is an indication that you're not believing this about God. He is the judge of all the earth. It's not our place to judge other people. He is the judge of all the earth. And he has reasons for things that happen to me, even if I think they're bad. We're not believing that about God, so we explode in anger. Perhaps you're overcome with your own health issues or the issues of your spouse or your children, health issues. And so then you respond by cowering in fear and anxiety. You're fearful and you're anxious regarding your health or the health of your child or your spouse. That is likely because you don't believe something about God. God has promised, right? He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Right? It's part of his character. His promise to new covenant believers in Jesus. It's Old Testament and New Testament. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we know that even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I should fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So in those moments, when we cower in anxiety and fear regarding our health or the health of someone we love, we are, we are not believing what God says about always being with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Perhaps you're overcome by moral temptation. So you sneak a look at that image or the other person's body. In that moment of sin, it is because you do not believe something about God. That is an act of unbelief, non-belief in God. Potentially act as if God is not watching or that he doesn't care. As a matter of fact, you'd be following what the Psalms say about the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He does not see. The Lord looks down from the heavens on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside together. They've begun corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. So in that moment of failure in the moral arena, falling to your own lust, it's a moment of non-belief. You do not believe that God knows or that he sees or that he cares. Are you overwhelmed with some, how someone treats you and prefers others and so then you slander him or her? If that is the case, it's likely because you struggle with unbelief. And you fail to believe different things the Bible reveals about the character of God. Things like that Jesus said. I think of Matthew 12, 36 where Jesus says, but I tell you, every careless word that people speak, 
they will give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. So in that moment when someone has done something to you and you choose to take, you know, go aside with someone else and slander that person, say corrupt and evil things about them, you are choosing not to either believe or care about what Jesus says about every careless word we will give an account for. Non-belief is a poison pill that affects each one of us. So, may our mutual daily encouragement with the word protect us from unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to work through Hebrews and then to think about how this passage applies to our lives. Father, We think of faith as a static thing. Either we have it or we don't. Yet faith is a dynamic thing. It is to be growing. We are to be expressing it throughout the course of our day, throughout our week. Lord, we all have many opportunities to demonstrate either that we believe you or something that you have said in your word or that we do not. And so I, I pray this morning for any of my brothers and sisters in Christ who might really be struggling with some sort of significant sin issue in their life. Or perhaps they did not like the way that I described it. Uh, and that's just secondary to me. But Father, if, if we have brothers and sisters who are struggling in some particular area, maybe one of the areas I described, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would give them strength. I pray that you would help them in the moment of temptation to believe. To believe. And then, Father, I pray as well that, that those brothers and sisters here today who struggle with these these sort of significant issues which we can all struggle with. Uh, Lord, I pray that they would see the need, the need for mutual daily encouragement in the word by other brothers and sisters. Lord, of course, one of the symptoms of someone whose heart is hardened or growing hard is that it's insensitive. It's insensitive to the word, to the preached word. But Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit of God can break through and show us, men and women, uh, our, our rebellion and our sin and our disobedience that springs forth from a lack of faith. So, Father, please help us. Help us through the Spirit. Do the work in the lives of people here today. We pray for the honor and glory of your own name, no one else's, your name, that you would be glorified and magnified by how we live our life. Lord, we pray that you would do this. I intercede for my brothers and sisters, my own heart as well, that you would keep us from an evil, unbelieving heart that draws us away from you. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.